Welcome to this week's episode of the Compass Equip podcast. Here at Compass, we exist to make disciples by reaching people for Christ, teaching people to be like Christ, and training people to serve Christ. And everything we do here at Compass, including this podcast, is to fulfill the mission of reaching, teaching, and training. Well, welcome back, Compass. I'm so glad to be joining you here. If, if you're new to this podcast, uh, my name is Hayden Thomas. I'm the lead pastor here at Compass Bible Church, and every single week we love to jump into uh, our sermon, at least as I preached it on Sunday. We want to jump into it, maybe tease some of the little bit of the details out, maybe that I wasn't able to address, and then we like to uh, talk a little bit about it, Then we like to have a time of Q&A where you guys have submitted some of your questions, and we'll take time to answer them and then maybe some other uh, th topics and announcements that we have that we'll share with them. We'll share them with you here during this podcast. But with that being said, when, and without further ado, we'll jump into our text. This sermon was called Jesus is Greater, and the subtitle is Unlikely Faith, and we are looking at the faith of the centurion there in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. I'll read that for you now. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, the centurion, and to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. I think it's helpful for us to understand what the text is saying, and then as we understand what the text is saying, that we then learn how to apply that to our life. And so as we sum up the, the meaning of just the, the text in general, what we see is that this centurion is an example of an unlikely individual whose faith in the authority of Jesus reveals that the kingdom of God is going to be full of people from every nation who trust in Christ's authority. And this may be uh, like it may be old news to you, but it wasn't old news uh, as we see the Bible's uh, the Bible unfolding, as we see um, the as we see God uh, revealing His plan of redemption. Uh, we don't see uh, explicitly that all of these nations will have representatives in the kingdom of God. We see glimpses of that in the Old Testament and the prophets. We see that when we see the prophets who would say, you know, I have, uh, you know, I, uh, let, let's, you know, when you think about some of the prophecies that teach about the fact that there's going to be these people who uh, do not belong, who will also belong. I mean, Jesus even says that when he, when he says, I have sheep that are not of this fold. Well, what does he mean? He means Israel. I have sheep that are not of the fold of Israel. Uh, and then we see, uh, when you look at some of the prophecies that are again repeated in, in Acts, and I'm going to pour my spirit out on not just Israel, but, but on, on all people. And uh, that reality is that open door for the, the, in, the inclusion of the Gentiles. However, before we even get to that, I know there's even a question. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. 
we need to understand, okay, I get the point of the text, but how do I apply that? Well, like the centurion, being in this example of an unlikely individual whose faith in the authority of Christ reveals something about the inclusion of people from every nation, we, as Gentiles who are of various nations, uh, we should understand that our lives should serve as shining examples of unlikely people whose faith in Christ's authority proves sufficient to inherit the kingdom of God. And so really, even like the third point on the, the sermon, like we need to understand that our lives should be a parable of the kingdom. And we need to make sure that our lives reflect a faith in Christ's authority that shows our, uh, really, our identity as kingdom citizens. And so with that being said, we'll go through the three points. Number one, kingdom citizens, here's what they do. They appeal to God on behalf of others. Like we're in the kingdom, we're praying for God to do his authoritative work through the power of Christ and his Holy Spirit in the world today. And so we're going to make sure that we're making supplications, as Ephesians 6.18 says, for all the saints. And we need to make sure that we take time in our life to say, I'm going to pray for others. I believe in the authority of Jesus, and I believe the authority of Jesus isn't just for me and my prayers, therefore for everybody, and therefore the, the, the fact that Christ is still working in the world today, exercising his authority over, over the world. And it's our uh, privilege and stewardship as a kingdom outpost called the local church to make sure that we're praying uh, for God to do his work in this world as he's bringing his kingdom uh, and manifesting his kingdom here and as he prepares to bring his kingdom fully in view in the eschaton to come. Point number two is we need to express our faith with an unworthy disposition. I spent a lot of time uh, on this point as we live in a culture that feels that we deserve everything, and at least not everything, that we, we believe we deserve a fair amount. And we need to recognize that that's just not the picture of Scripture. The, the picture of Scripture is that we are, are unworthy. I mean, Luke 17, 7 through 10, verse 10 says, that here's what we should say, that we are unworthy servants and we have only done what was our duty, that we've only done our job as we work hard for the Lord. Really what's happened is we've just done our job. Now, I don't know, maybe, you know, if you're one of those people who, who like to debate that kind of the thought, of like, what do you mean we're just unworthy servants? Well, I mean, just think about it. I mean, you're an unworthy servant. You've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. They weren't your clothes. They were, they were, you were clothed in Christ, metaphorically speaking. Uh, you are a child of the kingdom, not because you were born a child, but because you were adopted, uh, not because of anything that you did, not because of in, any special power or privilege that you have, but because of the power and authority of God. Uh, you're going to be a, you are a citizen of the kingdom, not because, uh, not because you, uh, were, you inherited any citizenship from your family, but because God took you and took you out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son. Uh, you're going to be rewarded in heaven, and it's not going to be because uh, you're just better than other people or that uh, you your sin has uh, diminished so much that all that's left is uh, all the, you know, in this life, like you don't sin anymore and you have all these good things that you do. And of course not, you, you, we still sin, we have to repent. There are still good things we do that are often tarnished by motives that are not completely pure uh, or uh, we do a lot of things, but they, they aren't as successful as we hope they would be. I mean, what I'm saying is, even if you think about your rewards, like, like I'm going to be, you are going to be, if you're a Christian and you, you live this life faithful unto the Lord, you're going to be rewarded in heaven. And even the rewards you're going to get aren't because you're 
worthy of those. It is a an example of the goodness of God in spite of who we are that he would lavish blessings on us and the inheritance that he's going to bestow on his children in heaven. And so all of that is meant to point you to the goodness of God and the authority of Jesus, none of which is supposed to point anything to us as we did anything. And even as Paul says, we're not sufficient and to do anything of ourselves. All of our sufficiency comes from Christ. And so all of the worthiness that we would receive is from Christ. And that, even in that sense, isn't that we are worthy in and of ourselves, but we have been imputed a kind of worthiness. So that means that these benefits from the kingdom of God that come from outside of us. And so we can say without any kind of contradiction in Scripture that we are unworthy people and we are servants doing what is our duty. And we can say, but in spite of my unworthiness, God has counted the worth, uh, the worthiness of Christ uh, onto my account. And so I am seen justified in Christ and a benefit, an heir to the throne of Christ through the sacrifice of Christ on my behalf. And so it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful picture if we understand who we are, uh, that we are indeed children of God, but through simply the unworthy, the, the, uh, the worthiness of Christ. And if we can sit with that perspective in our Christian faith, we're going to do a lot to be a kingdom parable in this culture. Because in our culture, everyone wants to figure out how they're good enough and worthy enough to get what they want. And what we do is we spend all of our time saying how unworthy we are and how we don't deserve anything. But yet how God has bestowed on us all the riches all the riches in heaven and how, how we have this inheritance that's guarded for us by the power of God, awaiting, awaiting for the time where Christ comes to reconcile all things to himself. And then we receive the benefit of the inheritance. I mean, that's a quite a different uh, story than the storyline that we see in our culture, and it would be good for us as Christians to uh, to begin living in light of that uh, lifestyle and expressing your faith in an unworthy disposition. Point number three, we need to desire Christ to use us as kingdom parables, as kingdom stories. I want us to, as we look at this text with the centurion to zoom out and understand that the whole text from you know verse 5 to verse 13 that really shows us a good picture of the centurion's faith was uh was marveled at by christ and christ took time in his ministry to stop and say let me tell you what this uh, roman gentile military leader's faith is uh, unfolding here for us that uh there are going to be a lot of people, a lot of Gentiles, all from east, verse 11, right, east from west, that are going to recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this messianic banquet. He's, people like him are going to be there simply because they have faith in Christ's authority to save them from their sin. And so you got to make sure that, hey, as your life, you exercising your faith in such a way where people will look at you and say, unlikely that this individual uh, would ever receive the mercy and grace of God, but here they are. Receiving the grace and grace and mercy of God. Why? Simply because they're trusting and they have faith. You know, you know, even, you know, it doesn't matter where you are in life. Maybe you grew up so far away from Christ and you, Christ opens your eyes. God opens your eyes to your need for salvation and you, he produced repentance and faith in your life and now you're saved. Or even if you're the individual who grew up in church and, you know, you've, you've been at church every day the door was open since you were born, it's still unlikely that uh, because of our own sin and our own separation from God, that anyone would, would be in the kingdom of God. So even that you, even the, in our world's eyes, the most likely to receive the kingdom of God, 
it's still find it that you'd be unlikely because of the fact that we're unworthy to receive the kingdom, but yet faith in Christ and his authority to give us admittance into the kingdom would be a wonderful story. And not to mention, unlikely that parents are raising their kids in, in, in the family of God, and that even that, that the children would be raised in a godly home and, uh, and come to know Christ. I mean, what a, what a wonderful story that is of a kingdom parable to say, hey, a parents, why don't you focus on raising godly children that they would be made wise into salvation and, and that God would open their eyes that they would receive salvation, perhaps at a younger age. And even that is what a, what a wonderful parable of the kingdom. Right, if I'll focus on the kingdom of God and His righteousness, then my kids, uh, my kids, it, it's likely, even unlikely world, that they might come to know Christ at an earlier age than many of us who didn't. And even that, I think, is just a wonderful picture of a kingdom parable that uh, those of us unlikely to receive any anything because of the grace and mercy of God, that we can be kingdom parables, so other people can say that's what it means to be a part of the kingdom. Of God, and I think baptisms are a great example of that. I think your own testimony is an example of that that you should be utilizing in your conversations with people about the gospel, about the ruling, the rulership of, the, of God. It means that's what it means by kingdom of God. We're talking about His authority and His rule, and as we think about the rule and authority of God, that we w- would, in our own lives, submit to the rulership and the authority of God, and allow our lives to be a reflection of how Christ is saving people in this time. You're going to be spending time in your application questions this week applying this sermon to your life, and I trust that you're working hard and diligent getting these questions done before your life group. You have uh, mostly the similar questions what you get on a normal week. There is a particular question on there at number four that I think uh, what w- is wonderful for you to look at. It'd be a, we can t- entitle this an exegetical question because what it's doing is it's pulling out the meaning of the text uh, and I'll just read it for you. Question number four. What can you ascertain from the centurion's faith in Matthew 8, 10 through 13, that would make Jesus marvel? And what I'm asking you to do in question number four is to go into the text and, and circle and underline and write down, well, this is an aspect of the centurion's faith that is worth marveling at and that Jesus did. You know, you look at that text and what was it about the faith of the centurion? Was it his understanding of, and of course it is, right? Was it understanding of what authority is? Was it understanding that Jesus had that authority bestowed on him by God? Was it that he came to the Lord when Gentiles wouldn't usually come to Jesus? Was it that he came to appeal on behalf of his servant and not selfishly on his own? I mean, what was it? And go in and write that down, and, and it'll help you as you begin trying to understand how to apply it to your life, that you first have to understand what is that text saying? And what is it wanting me to understand about uh, the faith of the centurion? The rest of them, I want to encourage you to make sure you spend time not just commentating on the question, but applying it to your life. And just a reminder, you have your Bible study question of the week that goes through our letter to the Philippians that we're going over in our men's and women's Bible studies. And you'll see that our question this week is on Romans 1, 9 through 11, particularly there in verse 9 where it says this, Paul's prayer in verse 9 is that the Philippians' love would abound more with knowledge and discernment. How are knowledge and discernment applied in verses 10 and 11? It's another exegetical question. And the question is, is how are knowledge and discernment applied in verses 10 and 11 as a tool to help the Philippians grow in their love for God and his people? And then the question comes to us and wants us to apply it. What areas of biblical knowledge would you like to grow in this year that will help your love for God and his people grow more and more? 
Hope you guys are enjoying that and are uh, seeing that Bible study question of the week is another great resource for you to continue your study in our men's and women's Bible study. We received a question in our Q&A segment this week for our sermon, and here it is. Can you expound on verses 11 and 12 and everything that you said in the sermon about the Gentiles being included in the kingdom and then only some Jews being saved? This was confusing for me to process with the Old Testament and blending of this in the New Testament scriptures. Thank you. Well, I didn't say that. Well, I did say that some Jews would be saved. Scripture says more than just some. I mean, it's going to be a much greater number than some. But as we look at this text, we see in verse 11, I tell you, many will come from east and west to recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. We're to talk about the Messianic banquet here. We see this as we look in Revelation as the marriage supper of the Lamb. And what we see here is that that Messianic banquet, it's not just going to be Jews. We're going to see Gentiles there, people from east and people from west. And they're going to be reclining at the table with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I mean, Jacob is Israel. He had the 12, he was the, the, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And you're telling me that there are going to be sons, verse 12, of the kingdom who aren't going to be there? I mean, that's the whole idea is that Jacob's sons will be there, but they're not going to be there. Why aren't they going to be there? You see some of this fleshed out in Romans uh, 11, and I'd encourage you to go read Romans 8, 9, 10, and 11. I think that would be, number one, it would be super encouraging for your faith as you read God's sovereignty and God's elective choice, God's uh, sovereignty in uh, the, the Jews, uh, the, the Israel, and even uh, the Gentiles. Uh, and you even see, in, in, uh, if you have an ESV in chapter 11, it talks about this remnant of Israel. And in verse 1, it says, I asked then, has God rejected his people? He's talking about Israel. And he says, by no means. He says, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And so, okay, so we're saying that God hasn't just thrown Israel away and replaced Israel with the church. That, that is not the picture here. The picture is that God hasn't forgotten Israel. I mean, his promises that we, that we see are irrevocable. I mean, we see that. Let's see. Uh, we see this. I'll just keep reading some more to help you understand where we're at. Um, let's see. I'm skipping down in chapter 11 to give you. Here we go. You go to 20. Read all of that. But verse 25 is a good example. Like we're talking about trusting God's plan to graft Israel back into this plan. We talked about the grafting nature of God's plan, even for Gentiles, that, that we, uh, which you can read that here. Uh, let's see. Uh, some of these branches were broken off, that is, the Israel, and uh, there was a wild olive shoot, which we're talking about, the, the Gentiles here, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. And it says, do not be arrogant toward the branches because we are being supported by the root. If you, are a member, if you remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. And so even that, that idea of, of us as Gentiles, we're being supported by the roots of the Israelite faith. And... Uh, and Paul continues to explain that, but and you're like, okay, well, that sounds like a lot, and I don't want to be arrogant about my faith as a Gentile, and so Paul actually says this, verse 25, 
lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. And it is a mystery. We talked about this mystery, right? This mystery of Gentile inclusion. And he says, brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until, listen to this, the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And so there's this truth that God has put a partial hardening over the nation of Israel uh, in this time that we call the, the church age or the age of the Gentiles, where th- there was a time where, where God only focused, and you see Jesus doing this in, in the Gospels. He's focusing on the house of Israel. But then he says, go into all nations. <clears throat> and now you see the gospel going to the Gentiles. And that we call this the time of the Gentiles, where we as Gentiles are being those ones who God is calling to himself from east and west. He's calling us to himself. And there's this, there's a time period for this, eschatologically. And when that time ends, the fullness of the Gentiles, when, it, when they have come in, in verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, which remember Jacob became Israel. So when they say, <clears throat> when these texts say Jacob, they mean Israel. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, keep listening to this, because God hasn't forgotten Israel. Verse 28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. So the Jews right now, yeah, they're enemies of the gospel, but why? So that we might have it, because if the Israel would have accepted all of this, then God would have come and rule and to reign, but in God's loving kindness, he put a partial hardening over Israel, that there would now be this time for the Gentiles to receive the kingdom of God, and so even though the Israel is enemies to the gospel, because so many of them reject the, the Messiah, they're enemies for our sake, so that we would have an opportunity to come into the kingdom, But, it says in verse 28, as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Listen to this, verse 29, what I was saying earlier. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And so those promises of God to fulfill the Abrahamic and Davidic covenant and to to fulfill Israel and to bring uh, bring them into the kingdom of God, that's irrevocable. That doesn't get taken away and just given to another people without without any final fulfillment that God will bring Israel to himself. In verse 30 and thir- through 32 says this, For just as you were at one time disobedient, talking about us, right, Gentiles, we were disobedient to God, but now we have received mercy because of the disobedience of Israel. So they too have now been disobedient in order that they may, by the mercy shown to you, that they may also receive mercy. So in God's plan that he has said, you know what? They have they have disobeyed that you might come to have the mercy of God. And so in their disobedience, why would we believe that they would not also be shown mercy? Because now God's mercy can be shown to them that he would turn them back to him. Verse 32, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Now, you're like, okay, I get some of it, but man, this is this seems, whew, okay, this seems really deep and profound, and that's why Paul says what he says in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And so now he, Paul's saying, listen, you don't have to know all these details, uh, and, and who, are, who are we to, to search the judgments and inscrutable ways of God? For us to understand, hey, the text says what the text says, that God is in his goodness and his timing going to bring back a remnant of Israel, 
and he's going to see them saved. And we see that eschatologically, and I didn't have time to talk about this in the sermon, but let me give it into simplified terms in a summary. Israel was looking for a Messiah who would come to rule and to reign. They were looking for a Messiah who would overthrow Rome and who would uh, reinstate the kingdom into the hands of Israel like it was with David and Solomon back in the Old Testament when Israel was thriving. And so their promises that they received from their prophets uh, in the Old Testament say that that there is going to be uh, a king who's going to come rule with a with an iron rod, and he's going to come and he's going to bring all these things back into rightful places. All and he's going to make all the good things, all the bad things good, all the wrong things right, like we always say. But when Jesus came, Israel was like, "Well, this isn't the one who came to do that." Now, this again is part of that mystery that we see that Jesus came first to deal with sin, and he's coming back to deal with judgment, and he's coming back to to rule and to reign. But that was hidden. As we look at the scriptures, we see it a little bit in Isaiah as we hear about the suffering servant. Uh, but to Israel, they, when they saw Jesus, it wasn't, the, it wasn't the Messiah that they thought. And particularly when he died at the hands of Rome, you know, on the cross, on a Roman crucifixion, I mean, they're like, well, okay, well, our Messiah is supposed to come and rule over Rome, not be killed by Rome. Now, you know, when Christ was resurrected, that is that is ultimately a really clear victory even over the Roman Empire that you can't kill the Messiah. However, now listen, when Christ comes back, he's going to be coming back in the, which you would read in the Old Testament language, the armies of the Lord will be following him. That means that, that he, is a, he is a military leader and he's going to be on a white horse and the, and the word of God is a, a sword will be coming out of his mouth and he will come and he's coming to rule and to reign. Now, we trust and we believe at that time in history, as Israel turns and they, and they gaze their eyes on Messiah, that they will see, oh, there is the Messiah to come and who's ruling and reigning and putting the kingdoms in the hands of his people and his father. And uh, it's at that moment that we, we trust and we believe that many in Israel will turn from their sins and they will place their trust in the authority of Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of questions that you have about that, but that is the gist of, uh, of what Scripture teaches about both the time of the Gentiles, uh, the inclusion of the Gentiles, and even that in a future time, Israel uh, will, uh, in mass, the, the nation of Israel will turn to Christ. I hope that's helpful for you, and I hope that answered your question, at least to help you get started on learning uh, a bit more about uh, what is to come and uh, the promises that we have as Gentiles that God and His mercy and grace has made a way for you and I to be a part of the kingdom of God. A couple of announcements. We have Dean now coming up in just a couple of weeks. I want to encourage you, if you haven't signed up your team, to be a part of our discipleship now, where we're going to be studying Hebrews 11 and 12 and learning how to have ambitious faith in a world that doesn't want to be ambitious about much. And I want to encourage you to sign up for that. Prices go up in this next week, so make sure that you don't delay. Our National Equipped Conference is coming up the first week of June. I want to encourage you guys to make sure you sign up for that. Uh, we are going to have a bunch of wonderful pastors coming to speak at that from our sister churches. We want to uh, remind you, this is not just for our church or our sister churches. This is for everyone who wants to hear what is the gospel all about, and to have resources and tools to learn how to better be equipped to preach and share the gospel to others. 
last announcements. Our next steps project is well underway, and uh, I, I look forward to getting a new update in the next couple of hours about where we are. But from the last update I received, we were 92% of the way to our $150,000 goal. And we just would pray that you would continue considering giving. We know that plans, uh, as we have been having our build team meeting, uh, there's uh, we always have to uh, look and see our, what our space has, what the needs are, the bids for all these projects. And so we just need to make sure that uh, we have a $150,000 goal. But uh, in, in reality, it's always going to cost more than we think to, to do projects like this. And as we've already found out in this building project that there is uh, with a building this size and a bunch of unused spaces uh, and a building that was a warehouse tends to have a lot of trouble transitioning it into assembly space. And so it's always going to cost more to do things like plumbing that we're having to think about and creating an environment that's both safe and enjoyable for our next generation ministries. So I want to encourage you to continue praying and continue considering how you're going to give to the Next Steps Project. Love to uh, bring to you guys in the near future a wonderful update in our per, uh, perspective plans that we have and we're going to roll out. And they may be a little bit different than the ones uh, that we had previously talked about, not because it's worse, because it's a lot better. God has opened up some opportunities for us to do some things that we thought wouldn't be possible at this timeline in our church. But that is why it's so important that you're praying that God would open those doors and that you're giving so that when those doors are open, we can walk right through them. With that being said, church, so grateful for you. I look forward to seeing you again next week.